It's a common misunderstanding of evolutionary theory when people claim that humans evolved from primates. On the surface, this makes sense. Humans and chimpanzees, for example, have similar hands, skeletal structures, and even certain brain features. But the truth is, humans didn't evolve from primates. Humans are primates, just one of many similar species. This similarity, however, may go beyond certain physical elements. There, in fact, could be cognitive similarities and even elements of culture that can help us understand elements of human psychology. You're listening to Under the Cortex. I'm Charles Blue with the Association for Psychological Science. To help shed some light on this fascinating area of research, I have with me Franz de Waal. Yeah, I'm Franz de Waal. I'm a primatologist and biologist. I I'm now retired. I worked for um, many years on chimpanzees and bonobos, but also on some other primates. And um, my interest is um, both these animals themselves, very interested in that, and the comparison with humans and with chimps and bonobos, of course, being our closest relatives. That is a, an easy comparison to make, even though some people may resist it maybe, but uh, it is an easy one to make. Recently, APS President Shinobu Kitayama has explored topics of diversity and inclusion, and most recently on how human culture plays into these issues. In his recent commentary, Shinobu touches on one fascinating element of human culture that overlaps with your studies of primate culture. Let's start there by looking at your research and what it tells us that we didn't know before. Well, the, the studies on Japanese macaques that he mentions were the, the very first where scientists proposed that animals have cultures. Uh, and this, this proposal came out of Japan from Kinye Imanishi, the, the founder of Japanese primatology. And he said, if animals can learn from each other, then one group can start behaving differently from another because they learn all the same habits from each other. And um, that means that one group of monkeys has a different culture than another group of monkeys. And then his, his students found on an island in Japan, Kushima, they found a group of macaques that had learned to wash sweet potatoes. And um, one, one young individual, one young female started doing it. And then it spread to her peers and then it spread to the mothers and then spread to the whole troop. And now 50 years later, 60 years later, everyone on that island, all monkeys, they wash their potatoes. And um, so that was a spread of a tradition. And since that time, we have had so many studies on cultures in animals um, that uh, the concept of animal culture is now very well established, but also the culture of the scientists. And I think that's what the piece referred to more. The culture of the scientists is important because Imanishi made that proposal in a time that Western scientists said, culture is what makes us human. So, so that excludes, of course, culture in animals. Culture is specifically human. And Imanishi um, didn't believe um, that humans were so special and so different. And I think that's a cultural difference is that um, in the West, we have a tendency to emphasize how humans are a special status and humans are unique and, and different and, and set us apart. And uh, in the East, it's different because for example, this whole concept of the soul that we have in the West, the soul, we have souls, we humans have souls, animals have no souls. 
uh, is not really something of the Eastern religions. In the Eastern religions, the soul can travel between a, a dog and, and a human, and from a human to a frog, so to speak. So, so this incarnation idea is, is very different. And so there's a cultural difference. Imanishi didn't think that humans were so unique and so special, and that's why he was open to this whole concept of culture in animals. And um, in the West, we were very reluctant to embrace his ideas. But now, of course, everyone is, is claiming to be the inventor of animal culture, but it came out of Japan. That has a lot to do also with uh, sort of different approaches. As you're saying, you're, you're studying the psychologist or what it tells us about the psychologist rather than the animal. Uh, I've recently run into a conversation where a group of people were discussing that humans evolved from primates and another group were saying, no, humans are primates. Yeah, that, that particular goal. So it, it, it really is that, that question of how you approach the whole uh, yeah, human, humans are primates and humans are animals. And, and sometimes, sometimes people say we are not animals. And I, I have no idea what they mean because we are not plants and we're not fungi. So I, I have no idea where they want to put us. But we are, of course, animals. Uh, and that resistance in the West, uh, that's interesting resistance that we need to be special. We meet, need to be set apart. And especially in this time where we are being defeated, our whole economy is being defeated by a very small virus and where we have all this climate change, which is also brought on by ourselves and our arrogance in, on this planet. At this time, it's, it's such an unproductive <laughs> approach to the world to say that we are separate and we are different. We are very much part of the natural world. And, and yes, we are primates, uh, that's for sure. There has been a growth in this understanding that the distinction between human and primate uh, has been changing. It was you know, first discovery of things like um, tool use among chimpanzees, which was you know, primarily considered a strictly human behavior uh, and uh, teaching that to others as you go along. So this is this research that uh, Shinobu is discussing is just seems like another step along the path to accepting that the distinction between human and animal behavior becomes more and more narrow as far as how we distinguish it. Yeah. When, you're, when we're looking at that, that 2003 paper again, we looked at, again, you're looking at the Western and Eastern interpretation. And there was this idea of kinship among primates as well. And perhaps there's a little bit more you can tell us about the concept of kinship and not just learn culture from one behavior. Is, is there more to it than that? Well, there's a very interesting history to it is that uh, Imanishi uh, urged his students to recognize all individual monkeys and to give them names or numbers or whatever they did and then uh, follow them over the years to, to plot their kinship relationships. And that's what they started doing. When they came to the West, his student Itani came one time to the West to explain the Japanese primatology to Western scientists in, in the United States. And, and he was laughed at. People, people couldn't believe. They said, it's impossible to recognize 100 monkeys. That's just not a possibility. And so they, they didn't believe him. And they, they made fun of him. And they said he humanized his subjects by giving them names and stuff like that. And so uh, they started doing that in the 1950s. But you know, in the 1960s, uh, Jane Goodall started doing it with chimpanzees and then other scientists um, in the West started doing it. 
and you can easily recognize 100 monkeys if I've done, I've done it myself. Uh, it takes a bit of training, but you can do that. Um, and so um, the Japanese met methodology became very popular. And now we use, all of us use it. We use it on elephants, on bears, on wolves. All, all scientists who work on social animals, they recognize individuals and they plot them over time to know their relationships. Uh, so that's a Japanese technique that we have adopted. Uh, even though we at first made fun of it. And kinship was a very important part of it because um, nowadays, of course, we have technologies with DNA that we can establish kinship even if we have not followed the individuals. We have that ability. But um, in the old days, that was impossible. And to know in a monkey group, for example, all the relationships between the females, the females have basically a matrilineal network where the mother and the daughter and the granddaughter and the grand-granddaughter, all of them are connected socially and live together and groom each other and travel together and stuff like that. And so, and they support each other in fights. And so the, the matrilineal hierarchy, as we call it, uh, if you are a high-ranking uh, young female and you're, you're born in a high-ranking family, you will be high-ranking because your whole family is going to support you. And so that's a very interesting system that was discovered by Imanishi and his students. And now we know that hyenas have the same sort of social system. We, we know that system, elephants also have the same sort of matriarchal system. So we know that we, we can recognize it in other species as well. I recently saw a documentary on rhesus macaques where there was a particularly high ranking female who uh, required deference from the other members of the tribe. Uh, or the troop, and uh, there was an effort put to instill this uh, fear and deference into a, a young male, and the mother mm -hmm. had to step away and, and let this happen because she was not as high as standing. And that's a very complex cultural hierarchy. Uh, is this becoming... Yes. Yeah, that's interesting, is that um, the, the male, of course, will, at puberty, normally, he will leave the troop and so it is not that important for the males to be higher or lower than the females because they will leave anyway at a certain age. It, it is basically a female system and the females are very insistent on their hierarchy among themselves. Hierarchies are typically within sex. Uh, I would say in humans probably also. The, the rivalry and the friendships are within the, within the gender. And so males compete with males, females compete with females. Between the sexes, things are totally different. There's a very different dynamic between the sexes. And so a female will be concerned about being higher ranking than other females her position vis-a-vis -vis other males, vis-a-vis uh, -vis males is, is really not that important, I think. And the same is true for males. Males care more about their position among themselves than uh, about the rest. We were talking about anthropomorphizing animals in research, and this was considered bad science by psychologists and primatologists to impose human models on primate behavior. We seem to be moving more and more away from that, but in reality, how far have we come from option one, there should be no humanizing of animals, to option two, where we're recognizing the commonalities between humans and animal behavior? Yeah, there was a time, and this was especially promoted by the behaviorists under influence of Skinner, um, who, who, who wanted to keep the distinction between humans and, and other animals intact. And they did that by as soon as you, you said something, let's say you say, my dog is jealous, 
they say, oh, that's anthropomorphic. You should never use that kind of terminology. And so they try to keep animals at a distance by excluding them from human language, basically. And, and we had to use different words. So for example, when I discovered that chimpanzees reconcile after fights with a kiss and an embrace, they would, say, they would say, you shouldn't speak of kissing. You should call it mouse to mouse contact. And you shouldn't speak of reconciliation. You should call it post-conflict contact. And so they, they had all, or, or for example, if you tickle a chimpanzee, the chimpanzee will laugh, makes laughing sounds and has a laughing face. Uh, you shouldn't call that laughing. You should call it vocalized panting. And so they, they wanted us in our language, basically they wanted us to castrate our language so that it didn't sound too human-like. And that was a way of keeping animals at a distance. And it's, it's a totally non-Darwinian approach, of course, because it denies the evolutionary connection between humans and other primates. Uh, but that was very popular at the time. And I think we are dropping that. I personally think, especially with animals that are close to us, like chimps and bonobos, uh, it makes absolutely no sense to to change your language when you move to them. I, I think the, the basic assumption in everything with chimps and bonobos should be that if they do something similar to us, it is probably psychologically very similar too. Uh, so that should be your basic assumption. That's the most elegant and parsimonious assumption. And is that becoming more recognized in the research community that that is a legitimate approach and may actually provide better insights than creating this artificial wall of distance between the observer and the primate being studied? That's for, certainly for the younger generation, I would say that's now the position, yeah. The, the older generation maybe still clings to the idea that as soon as you talk about animals, you have to change your language, so to speak. Uh, but I think the younger generation is not doing that anymore. And, and it makes, as I say, from a Darwinian perspective, it makes no sense. So we are talking a bit about culture and I wanna circle back just one more time to the point that Shinobu was making in human psychology and how researchers um, typically share culture and ethnic traditions with their research participants. So there is that binding connection there. there there's sort of a baseline understanding. Because of this, he proposes, it's very difficult for researchers to recognize culture as a factor guiding and shaping participants' behavior. The humans, human psychologists, people, psychologists who work on humans, they have this double disadvantage, is that they work on their own species, which is really problematic, I think, because you are so invested in your own species and you recognize so many subtleties of the expressions. And, and then in addition, uh, th there's the, the same culture. And so you, you don't even take distance from the culture and, and you don't even see which parts of your human subjects are due to the, the culture that you share with them or the different culture that they may have. And so, yeah, I think the, the human psychologist is in a very, a very difficult position. And then on top of that, the, the, the human psychologists very often rely on questionnaires, which fortunately I cannot do. I work with primates and they cannot fill out questionnaires and I'm so happy. Not yet. Uh, no, but I'm very happy that 
that I'm not working with that because I don't trust people. I, 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 I for some reason, psychologists trust all the answers that they get, and they and they tell me I've you know I've worked for 25 years at the psychology department, so I know their arguments. They tell me we have ways of verifying if people are truthful in their answers. We have ways of dealing with this. Uh, but I still believe that if you talk about sensitive matters like, um, let's say, sexuality or something like that, uh, you're not going to get honest answers from people. And so um, I would prefer that they work on behavior, that they act study actual behavior. They go out there in the world and they watch behavior. And, and that would also be a way of, of dealing with the biases that you put in your questionnaire and so on, because if you watch behavior, you get much more honest sort of information. It's of course more difficult. Uh, I'm just mentioned sexuality. I don't know how you study human sexuality, uh, just behaviorally, that's going to be a bit difficult. Uh, but in many other domains, we can do a lot of behavioral research that would give you, I think, a, a different take on the human species. But you can actually make these observations on primates in their natural environment. So Mm -hmm. Is there a path where you can do those observations, make direct observations that you couldn't do with humans, and then translate that as some sort of new insight into human psychology? Has that been done, or is that still a ways away before we attempt to make that leap? No, that has been done. The, the, the behavioral scientists in Europe, it's usually called etology. Uh, that's the old name for, the, for behavioral biology, let's say. Uh, the study of animals in their natural environment, or at least naturalistic behavior. And those techniques of the etologists, uh, techniques of observing behavior, are being applied by uh, developmental psychologists. So developmental psychologists are in an interesting position because they don't rely as much on uh, questionnaires because children, sometimes they're pre-verbal, so you cannot even ask them questions, but sometimes it is easier to watch them and see what they do. And, and so the developmental psychologists, they have a lot of techniques in common uh, with, um, with biologists, behavioral biologists. So, so yes, these techniques are being applied to children. I wish they were also applied to adults, but that's much less the case. If we were to take a look forward now, and this is more speculation, but where is the knowledge gap currently in this concept of cultural behavior in animals and its connection to humans? Do we need to start research in a new direction? Is there the next logical step that we have yet to take as far as learning what those connections mean and how we can better study them? Yeah, the, the um, psychologists have been very interested in the mechanism of, of how we learn from each other. So how culture is being transmitted. And uh, so the psychologists have focused very much on, let's say the distinction between imitation and emulation or, uh, or whether animals have teaching or not, something like that. Uh, that. That is usually not how the biologist necessarily looks at it because we look at it from a more functional perspective. And we think, um, However, the animals learn from each other, whatever means they have, they do adopt habits that they spread, that spread through their communities. And so they learn things that they need to learn. For example, a young monkey will learn from its fellow monkeys that a snake is dangerous. So the monkey doesn't need to be bitten necessarily by a snake 
to understand that the snake is dangerous, the monkey learns that socially. And it, it's extremely adaptive, of course, to, to learn that, that you have to stay away from snakes from others instead of waiting till the moment that you get bitten by a snake. And so uh, social learning is very important. It's very important for the survival of animals. Most animals, uh, if you would take them from captivity and put them in the forest, they would never survive because they don't have the knowledge to survive. So all this social knowledge that they get from others uh, is extremely important for survival. And yeah, th that's where the, uh, the similarities are, I think, uh, between human cultural studies and animal cultural studies is how, how culture got started and how it is basically a survival skill uh, to learn from others what is important in your environment. Is there anything else that we haven't touched upon that you think is particularly relevant or interesting that our audience should know? <laughs> well, the, the piece was about how the, the culture of the scientist influences his or her science. Uh, and uh, I've always thought about that. And that's maybe also why I was sensitive to the Japanese situations because I'm, I'm not an American, I'm from, from the Netherlands. And uh, I've always felt that in, in the US, um, the scientists were too obsessed with aggression and competition uh, and not enough with solidarity and, 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 and other group processes. And so my interest, for example, in my own case, I think my interest in reconciliation behavior, empathy and so on in the primates uh, was partly in reaction to all this emphasis on competition and aggression that I found uh, in, in American scientists. So, so I, I resonate very much with the message that the culture of a scientist has effects on how he or she does their science. And, and that is an interesting lesson also for um, uh, psychology in general, because of course, psychologists come in all sorts of cultural varieties and we have Japanese and Chinese and Af African and European um, psychologists and they all interact with each other in their societies and in their journals. And um, sometimes the differences between them are cultural differences. And I think it's very productive to have these sort of clashes, these culture clashes going on because we all learn from each other that way. This is Charles Blue with the Association for Psychological Science. And I've been talking with Franz DeWall about his research into the fields of primate culture and studies and what that has to tell us in the field of psychological science. Uh, so thank you very much, Franz. I appreciate your time today. You're welcome.